0: section four of europe and elsewhere by mark twain this librivox recording is in the public domain read by john greenman chapter four o shah part one a series of newsletters describing a visit to england by the shah of persia One, the arrival in england london june eighteenth eighteen seventy three would you like to go over to Belgium and help bring the Shah to England?' "'I said I was willing. "'Very well, then, here is an order from the Admiralty, which will admit you on board Her Majesty's ship lively, now lying at Ostend, and you can return in her day after tomorrow.' "'That was all. That was the end of it. Without stopping to think, I had in a manner—' taken upon myself to bring the shah of persia to england i could not otherwise regard the conversation i had just held with the london representative of the new york herald the amount of discomfort i endured for the next two or three hours cannot be set down in words i could not eat sleep talk smoke with any satisfaction. The more I thought the thing over, the more oppressed I felt. What was the shah to me, that I should go to all this worry and trouble on his account? Where was there the least occasion for taking upon myself such a responsibility? If I got him over all right, well. But if I lost him, if he died on my hands, if he got drowned, it was depressing any way I looked at it. In the end, I said to myself, if I get this shah over here safe and sound, I never will take charge of another one. And yet, at the same time, I kept thinking, this country has treated me well stranger as I am, and this foreigner is the country's guest. That is enough. I will help him out. I will fetch him over. I will land him in London and say to the British people, here is your shah. Give me a receipt." I felt easy in my mind now and was about to go to bed. But something occurred to me i took a cab and drove downtown and routed out that herald representative where is belgium said i where is belgium i never heard such a question that doesn't make any difference to me if i have got to fetch this shah i don't wish to go to the wrong place where is belgium Is it a shilling fare in a cab? He explained that it was in foreign parts, the first place I have heard of lately, which a body could not go to in a cab for a shilling. I said I could not go alone, because I could not speak foreign languages well, could not get up in time for the early train without help and could not find my way. I said it was enough to have the shah on my hands. I did not wish to have everything piled on me. Mr. Blank was then ordered to go with me. I do like to have somebody along to talk to when I go abroad. When I got home I sat down and thought the thing all over. I wanted to go into this enterprise understandingly. What was the main thing? That was the question. A little reflection informed me. For two weeks the London papers had sung just one continual song to just one continual tune, and the idea of it all was how to impress the shah. These papers had told all about the St. Petersburg splendors, and had said at the end that splendors would no longer answer, that England could not outdo Russia in that respect. Therefore, some other way of impressing the shah must be contrived. And these papers had also told all about the shy stick reception in prussia and its attendant military pageantry england could not improve on that sort of thing she could not impress the shah with soldiers something else must be tried and so on column after column page after page of agony about how to impress the shah At last they had hit upon a happy idea, a grand naval exhibition. That was it. A man brought up in oriental seclusion and simplicity, a man who had never seen anything but camels and such things, could not help being surprised and delighted with the strange novelty of ships the distress was at an end england heaved a great sigh of relief she knew at last how to impress the shah my course was very plain now after that bit of reflection all i had to do was to go over to belgium and impress the shah i failed to form any definite plan as to the process, but I made up my mind to manage it somehow. I said to myself, I will impress this shah, or there shall be a funeral that will be worth contemplating. I went to bed then, but did not sleep a great deal, for the responsibilities were weighing pretty heavily upon me. At six o'clock in the morning Mr. Blank came and turned me out. I was surprised at this, and not gratified, for I detest early rising. I never like to say severe things, but I was a good deal tried this time. I said I did not mind getting up moderately early, but I hated to be called day before yesterday. However, as I was acting in a national capacity, and for a country that I liked, I stopped grumbling and we set out. A grand naval review is a good thing to impress a shah with, but if he would try getting up at six o'clock in the morning, but no matter, we started. We took the Dover train and went whistling along over the housetops at the rate of fifty miles an hour, and just as smoothly and pleasantly, too, as if we were in a sleigh. One never can have anything but a very vague idea of what speed is until he travels over an English railway. Our lightning expresses are sleepy and indolent by comparison we looked into the back windows of the endless ranks of houses abreast and below us and saw many a homelike little family of early birds sitting at their breakfasts new views and new aspects of london were about me the mighty city seemed to spread farther and wider in the clear morning air than it had ever done before there is something awe-inspiring about the mere look of the figures that express the population of london when one comes to set them down in a good large hand four millions it takes a body's breath away almost we presently left the city behind We had started drowsy, but we did not stay so. How could we, with the brilliant sunshine pouring down, the balmy wind blowing through the open windows, and the Garden of Eden spread all abroad? We swept along through rolling expanses of growing grain, not a stone or a stump to mar their comeliness, not an unsightly fence or an ill-kept hedge, through broad meadows covered with fresh green grass as clean-swept as if a broom had been at work there, little brooks wandering up and down them, noble trees here and there, cows in the shade, groves in the distance, and church spires projecting out of them. And there were the quaintest old-fashioned houses set in the midst of smooth lawns, or partly hiding themselves among fine old forest trees. And there was one steep-roofed ancient cottage whose walls all around, and whose roof, and whose chimneys, were closed in a shining mail of ivy leagues so thoroughly indeed that only one little patch of roof was visible to prove that the house was not a mere house of leaves with glass windows in it imagine those dainty little homes surrounded by flowering shrubs and bright green grass and all sorts of old trees and then go on and try to imagine something more bewitching. By and by we passed Rochester, and sure enough right there on the highest ground in the town and rising imposingly up from among clustering roofs was the gray old castle, roofless, ruined, ragged, the sky beyond showing clear and blue through the glassless windows the walls partly clad with ivy a time-scarred weather-beaten old pile but ever so picturesque and ever so majestic too there it was a whole book of english history i had read of rochester castle a thousand times but i had never really believed there was any such building before presently We reached the sea and came to a stand far out on a pier and here was dover and more history the chalk cliffs of england towered up from the shore and the french coast was visible on the tallest hill sat dover castle stately and spacious and superb looking just as it has always looked any time these ten or fifteen thousand years i do not know its exact age and it does not matter anyway we stepped aboard the little packet and sailed away the sea was perfectly smooth and painfully brilliant in the sunshine there were no curiosities in the vessel except the passengers and a placard in french setting forth the transportation fares for various kinds of people. The lithographer probably considered that placard a triumph. It was printed in green, blue, red, black, and yellow. No individual line in one color. Even the individual letters were separately colored. For instance, the first letter of a word would be blue, The next red, the next green, and so on. The placard looked as if it had the smallpox or something. I inquired the artist's name and place of business, intending to hunt him up and kill him when I had time, but no one could tell me. In the list of prices, first-class passengers were set down at Fifteen shillings and fourpence, and dead bodies at one pound ten shillings and eightpence, just double price. That is Belgian morals, I suppose. I never say a harsh thing unless I am greatly stirred, but in my opinion, the man who would take advantage of a dead person would do almost any odious thing. I publish this scandalous discrimination against the most helpless class among us in order that people intending to die abroad may come back by some other line. We skimmed over to Ostend in four hours and went ashore. The first gentleman we saw happened to be the flag lieutenant of the fleet, and he told me where the lively lay and said she would sail about six in the morning. Heavens and earth. He said he would give my letter to the proper authority, and so we thanked him and bore away for the hotel. Bore away is good sailor phraseology, and I have been at sea portions of two days now. I easily pick up a foreign language. Ostend is a curious, comfortable-looking, massively built town, where the people speak both the French and the Flemish with exceeding fluency, and yet I could not understand them in either tongue, but I will write the rest about Ostend in tomorrow's letter. We idled about this curious Ostend the remainder of the afternoon, and far into the long-lived twilight, apparently to amuse ourselves, but secretly I had a deeper motive. I wanted to see if there was anything here that might impress the Shah. In the end I was reassured and content. If Ostend could impress him, England could amaze the head clear off his shoulders and have marvels left that not even the trunk could be indifferent to. These citizens of Flanders, Flounders, I think they call them, though I feel sure I have eaten a creature of that name, or seen it in an aquarium or a menagerie, or in a picture or somewhere, are a thrifty, industrious race, and are as commercially wise and far-sighted as they were in the third's time and as enduring and patient under adversity as they were in charles the bolds they are prolific in the matter of children in some of the narrow streets every house seemed to have had a freshet of children which had burst through and overflowed into the roadway One could hardly get along for the pack of juveniles, and they were all soiled and all healthy. They all wore wooden shoes, which clattered noisily on the stone pavements. All the women were hard at work. There were no idlers about the houses. The men were away at labor, no doubt. In nearly every door, women sat at needlework or something of that marketable nature. They were knitting principally. Many groups of women sat in the street, in the shade of walls, making point lace. The lace-maker holds a sort of pillow on her knees with a strip of cardboard fastened on it, on which the lace pattern has been punctured. She sticks bunches of pins in the punctures and about them weaves her web of threads. The numberless threads diverge from the bunch of pins like the spokes of a wheel, and the spools from which the threads are being unwound form the outer circle of the wheels. The woman throws her spools about her with flying fingers, in and out, over and under one another, and so fast that you can hardly follow the evolutions with your eyes. In the chaos and confusion of skipping spools, you wonder how she can possibly pick up the right one every time, and especially how she can go on gossiping with her friends all the time, and yet never seem to miss a stitch. The laces these ingenious flounders were making were very dainty and delicate in texture and very beautiful in design. Most of the shops in Ostend seemed devoted to the sale of sea-shells. All sorts of figures of men and women were made of shells. One sort was composed of grotesque and ingenious combinations of lobster-claws in the human form and they had other figures made of stuffed frogs, some fencing, some barbering each other, and some were not to be described at all without indecent language. It must require a barbarian nature to be able to find humor in such nauseating horrors as these last. These things were exposed in the public windows where Young girls and little children could see them, and in the shops sat the usual hairy-lipped young woman waiting to sell them. There was a contrivance attached to the better class of houses which I had heard of before, but never seen. It was an arrangement of mirrors outside the window. So contrived that the people within could see who was coming either up or down the street, see all that might be going on, in fact, without opening the window or twisting themselves into uncomfortable positions in order to look. A capital thing to watch for unwelcome or welcome visitors with or to observe pageants in cold or rainy weather. People in second and third stories had also another mirror which showed who was passing underneath. The dining room at our hotel was very spacious and rather gorgeous. One end of it was composed almost entirely of a single pane of plate glass, some two inches thick. For this is the plate-glass manufacturing region you remember it was very clear and fine if one were to enter the place in such a way as not to catch the sheen of the glass he would suppose that the end of the house was wide open to the sun and the storms a strange boyhood instinct came strongly upon me and I could not really enjoy my dinner. I wanted to break that glass so badly. I have no doubt that every man feels so, and I know that such a glass must be simply torture to a boy. This dining room's walls were almost completely covered with large oil paintings in frames. It was an excellent hotel the utmost care was taken that everything should go right i went to bed at ten and was called at eleven to take the early train i said i was not the one so the servant stirred up the next door and he was not the one and the next door and the next no success and so on till The reverberations of the knocking were lost in the distance down the hall, and I fell asleep again. They called me at twelve to take another early train, but I said I was not the one again, and asked as a favor that they would be particular to call the rest next time, but never mind me. However, they could not understand my English. They only said something in reply to signify that, and then went on banging up the boarders, none of whom desired to take the early train. When they called me at one, it made my rest seem very broken, and I said if they would skip me at two, I would call myself, not really intending to do it but hoping to beguile the porter and deceive him. He probably suspected that, and was afraid to trust me, because when he made his rounds at that hour he did not take any chances on me, but routed me out along with the others. I got some more sleep after that, but when the porter called me at three I felt depressed and jaded and greatly discouraged. So I gave it up and dressed myself. The porter got me a cup of coffee and kept me awake while I drank it. He was a good, well-meaning sort of flounder, but really a drawback to the hotel, I should think. Poor Mr. came in then, looking worn and old. He had been called for all the different trains, too, just as I had. He said it was a good enough hotel, but they took too much pains. While we sat there talking we fell asleep and were called again at four. Then we went out and dozed about town till six, and then drifted aboard the lively. She was trim and bright and clean and smart. She was as handsome as a picture. The sailors were in brand-new man-of-war costume, and plenty of officers were about the decks in the state uniform of the service, cocked hats, huge epaulettes, claw-hammer coats lined with white silk, hats and coats and trousers all splendid with gold lace. I judged that these were all admirals, and so got afraid and went ashore again. Our vessel was to carry the shaw's brother, also the grand vizier, several Persian princes who were uncles to the shaw, and other dignitaries of more or less consequence. A vessel alongside was to carry the luggage, and a vessel just ahead, the vigilant, was to carry nobody but just the shah and certain ministers of state and servants, and the queen's special ambassador, Sir Henry Rawlinson, who is a Persian scholar and talks to the shah in his own tongue. I was very glad, for several reasons, to find that I was not to go in the same ship with the shah. First, with him not immediately under my eye, I would feel less responsibility for him, and, secondly, as I was anxious to impress him, I wanted to practice on his brother first. THE SHAW'S QUARTERS On the after-deck of the vigilant, very handsome ship. A temporary cabin had been constructed for the sole and special use of the Shaw. temporary but charmingly substantial and graceful and pretty. It was about thirty feet long and twelve wide, beautifully gilded, decorated, and painted within and without. Among its colors was a shade of light green, which reminds me of an anecdote about the Persian party, which I will speak of in tomorrow's letter. It was getting along toward the time for the shah to arrive from Brussels, so I ranged up alongside my own ship. I do not know when I ever felt so ill at ease and undecided. It was a sealed letter which I had brought from the admiralty. And i could not guess what the purport of it might be i supposed i was intended to command the ship that is i had supposed it at first but after seeing all those splendid officers i had discarded that idea i cogitated a good deal but to no purpose presently a regiment of belgian troops arrived and formed in line along the pier. Then a number of people began to spread down carpets for fifty yards along the pier by the railway track, and other carpets were laid from these to the ships. The gangway leading on board my ship was now carpeted, and its railings were draped with bright-colored signal flags. It began to look as if I was expected, so I walked on board. A sailor immediately ran and stopped me, and made another sailor bring a mop for me to wipe my feet on, lest I might soil the deck, which was wonderfully clean and nice. Evidently I was not the person expected after all. I pointed to the group of officers and asked the sailor what the naval law would do to a man if he were to go and speak to some of those admirals, for there was an awful air of etiquette and punctilio about the premises. But just then one of those officers came forward and said that if his instinct was correct, an admiralty order had been received giving me a passage in the ship and he also said that he was the first lieutenant, and that I was very welcome, and he would take pains to make me feel at home, and furthermore there was champagne and soda waiting down below, and furthermore still all the London correspondents, to the number of six or seven would arrive from Brussels with the shah and would go in our ship and if our passage were not a lively one and a jolly and enjoyable one it would be a very strange thing indeed i could have jumped for joy if i had not been afraid of breaking some rule of naval etiquette and getting hanged for it now the train was signaled and everybody got ready for the great event. The Belgian regiment straightened itself up, and some two hundred flounders arrived and took conspicuous position on a little mound. I was a little afraid that this would impress the shah, but I was soon occupied with other interests. The train of thirteen cars came tearing in and stopped abreast the ships. Music and guns began an uproar. Odd-looking Persian faces and felt hats, brimless stovepipes, appeared at the car windows. Some gorgeous English officials fled down the carpet from the vigilant. They stopped at a long car with the royal arms upon it, uncovered their heads, and unlocked the car door. Then the Shah stood up in it and gave us a good view. He was a handsome, strong-featured man with a rather European fairness of complexion, had a mustache, wore spectacles, seemed of a good height and graceful build and carriage, and looked about forty or a shade less. He was very simply dressed brimless stovepipe and close-buttoned, dark-green military suit without ornament. No, not wholly without ornament, for he had a band two inches wide, worn over his shoulder and down across his breast, scarf fashion, which band was one solid glory of fine diamonds. A persian official appeared in the shah's rear and enveloped him in an ample quilt or cloak if you please which was lined with fur the outside of it was of a whitish color and elaborately needleworked in persian patterns like an india shawl the shah stepped out and the official procession formed about him and marched him down the carpet and on board the vigilant to slow music not a flounder raised a cheer all the small fry swarmed out of the train now the shah walked back alongside his fine cabin looking at the assemblage of silent solemn flounders the correspondent of the london telegraph was hurrying along the pier and took off his hat and bowed to the king of kings and the king of kings gave a polite military salute in return this was the commencement of the excitement the success of the breathless telegraph man made all the other london correspondents mad every man of whom flourished his stovepipe recklessly and cheered lustily, some of the more enthusiastic varying the exercise by lowering their heads and elevating their tails. Seeing all this, and feeling that if I was to impress the shah at all, now was my time. I ventured a little squeaky yell, quite distinct from the other shouts, but just as hearty his shah-ship heard and saw and saluted me in a manner that was, I considered, an acknowledgment of my superior importance. I do not know that I ever felt so ostentatious and absurd before. All the correspondents came aboard, and then the Persian baggage came also and was carried across to the ship alongside of ours when she could hold no more we took somewhere about a hundred trunks and boxes on board our vessel two boxes fell into the water and several sailors jumped in and saved one but the other was lost however it probably contained nothing but a few hundred pounds of diamonds and things. At last we got under way and steamed out through a long slip, the piers on either side being crowded with flounders, but never a cheer. A battery of three guns on the starboard pier boomed a royal salute, and we swept out to sea. The vigilant in the lead, we write in her wake and the baggage ship in ours within 15 minutes everybody was well acquainted a general jollification set in and i was thoroughly glad i had come over to fetch the shaw 2 mark twain executes his contract and delivers the shaw in london LONDON, JUNE 19, 1873 SOME PERSIAN FINERY Leaving Ostend, we went out to sea under a clear sky and upon smooth water, so smooth indeed that its surface was scarcely rippled. I say the sky was clear, and so it was, clear and sunny but a rich haze lay upon the water in the distance, a soft, mellow mist through which a scattering sail or two loomed vaguely. One may call such a morning perfect. The Corps of Correspondents were well jaded with their railway journey, but after champagne and soda downstairs with the officers, everybody came up, refreshed and cheery and exceedingly well acquainted all around the persian grandees had meantime taken up a position in a glass house on the after-deck and were sipping coffee in a grave oriental way they all had much lighter complexions and a more european cast of features than i was prepared for and several of them were exceedingly handsome, fine-looking men. They all sat in a circle on a sofa, the deck-house being circular, and they made a right gaudy spectacle. Their breasts were completely crusted with gold bullion embroidery of a pattern resembling frayed and interlacing ferns and they had large, jeweled ornaments on their breasts also. The Grand Vizier came out to have a look around. In addition to the sumptuous gold fernery on his breast, he wore a jeweled star as large as the palm of my hand, and about his neck hung the shah's miniature, reposing in a bed of diamonds that gleamed and flashed in a wonderful way when touched by the sunlight it was said that to receive the shah's portrait from the shah was the biggest compliment that could be conferred upon a persian subject i did not care so much about the diamonds but i would have liked to have the portrait very much The Grand Vizier's sword-hilt and the whole back of the sheath from end to end were composed of a neat and simple combination of some twelve or fifteen thousand emeralds and diamonds. Impressing a Persian General Several of the Persians talked French and English. One of them, who was said to be a general, Came up on the bridge where some of us were standing, pointed to a sailor, and asked me if I could tell him what that sailor was saying. I said he was communicating with the other ships by means of the optical telegraph, that by using the three sticks the whole alphabet could be expressed. I showed him how A b and c were made and so forth good this persian was impressed he showed it by his eyes by his gestures by his manifest surprise and delight i said to myself if the shaw were only here now the grand desire of great britain could be accomplished the general immediately called the other grandees and told them about this telegraphic wonder then he said now does every one on board acquire this knowledge no only the officers and this sailor he is only the signal man two or three sailors on board are detailed for this service and by order and direction of the officers they communicate with the other ships. Very good, very fine, very great indeed. These men were unquestionably impressed. I got the sailor to bring the signal-book, and the matter was fully explained, to their high astonishment also the flag signals, and likewise the lamp signals for night telegraphing. Of course the idea came into my head in the first place to ask one of the officers to conduct this bit of instruction, but I at once dismissed it. I judged that this would all go to the Shah sooner or later. I had come over on purpose to impress the Shah, and I was not going to throw away my opportunity. I wish the queen had been there. I would have been knighted, sure. You see, they knight people here for all sorts of things. Knight them, or put them into the peerage and make great personages of them. Now, for instance, a king comes over here on a visit the lord Mayor and sheriffs do him becoming honors in the city and straightway the former is created a baronet and the latter are knighted when the prince of wales recovered from his illness one of his chief physicians was made a baronet and the other was knighted charles the second made duchesses of one or two female acquaintances of his for something or other. I have forgotten now what it was. A London shoemaker's apprentice became a great soldier, indeed a Wellington, won prodigious victories in many climes, and covered the British arms with glory all through a long life. And when he was one hundred and eighty-seven years old, They knighted him and made him constable of the tower. But he died next year, and they buried him in Westminster Abbey. There is no telling what that man might have become if he had lived. So you see what a chance I had, for I have no doubt in the world that I have been the humble instrument under Providence of impressing the shah, and I really believe that if the queen comes to hear of it, I shall be made a duke. Friends intending to write will not need to be reminded that a duke is addressed as your grace. It is considered a great offense to leave that off. A picturesque naval spectacle. When we were a mile or so out from Ostend, conversation ceased, an expectant look came into all faces, and opera-glasses began to stand out from above all noses. This impressive hush lasted a few minutes, and then someone said, "'There they are! Where? Away, yonder, ahead, straight ahead!' which was true three huge shapes smothered in the haze the vanguard the audacious and the devastation all great ironclads they were to do escort duty the officers and correspondents gathered on the forecastle and waited for the next act a red spout of fire issued from the vanguard's side Another flashed from the audacious. Beautiful these red tongues were against the dark haze. Then there was a loud pause, ever so long a pause, and not a sound, not the suspicion of a sound. And now out of the stillness came a deep, solemn boom, boom. It had not occurred to me that, at so great a distance, I would not hear the report as soon as I saw the flash. The two crimson jets were very beautiful, but not more so than the rolling volumes of white smoke that plunged after them, rested a moment over the water, and then went wreathing and curling up among the webbed rigging and the tall masts, and left only glimpses of these things visible high up in the air, projecting as if from a fog. Now the flashes came thick and fast from the black sides of both vessels. The muffled thunders of the guns mingled together in one continuous roll. The two ships were lost to sight, and in their places two mountains of tumbled smoke rested upon the motionless water, their bases in the hazy twilight, and their summits shining in the sun. It was good to be there and see so fine a spectacle as that. THE NAVAL SALUTE We closed up fast upon the ironclads. They fell apart to let our flotilla come between, and as the vigilant ranged up, the rigging of the ironclads was manned to salute the shah. And indeed that was something to see. The shrouds, from the decks clear to the trucks, away up toward the sky were black with men on the lower rounds of these rope ladders they stood five abreast holding each other's hands and so the tapering shrouds formed attenuated pyramids of humanity six pyramids of them towering into the upper air and clear up on the top of each dizzy mast stood a little creature like a clothespin, a mere black peg against the sky, and that mite was a sailor waving a flag like a postage stamp. All at once the pyramids of men burst into a cheer and followed it with two more given with a will, and if the shah was not impressed, he must be the offspring of a mummy and just at this moment while we all stood there gazing however breakfast was announced and i did not wait to see the thirty four ton guns speak if there is one thing that is pleasanter than another it is to take breakfast in the wardroom with a dozen naval officers. Of course, that awe-inspiring monarch, the captain, is aft, keeping frozen state with the Grand Viziers, when there are any on board, and so there is nobody in the wardroom to maintain naval etiquette. As a consequence, none is maintained." One officer in a splendid uniform snatches a champagne bottle from a steward and opens it himself. Another keeps the servants moving. Another opens soda. Everybody eats, drinks, shouts, laughs in the most unconstrained way, and it does seem a pity that ever the thing should come to an end. No individual present seemed sorry he was not in the ship with the Shah. When the festivities had been going on about an hour, some tremendous booming was heard outside. Now here was a question between duty and broiled chicken. What might that booming mean? Anguish sat upon the faces of the correspondents. I watched to see what they would do, and the precious moments were flying. Somebody cried down a companionway, "'The devastation is saluting!' The correspondents tumbled over one another, over chairs, over everything in their frenzy to get on deck, and the last gun reverberated as the last heel disappeared on the stairs the devastation, the pride of England, the mightiest war vessel afloat, carrying guns that outweigh any metal in any service, it is said, thirty-five tons each. And these boys had missed that spectacle. At least, I knew that some of them had. I did not go. Age has taught me wisdom. If a spectacle is going to be particularly imposing, I prefer to see it through somebody else's eyes, because that man will always exaggerate. Then I can exaggerate his exaggeration, and my account of the thing will be the most impressive. But I felt that I had missed my figure this time because I was not sure which of these gentlemen reached the deck in time for a glimpse, and which didn't. And this morning I cannot tell by the London papers. They all have imposing descriptions of that thing, and no one of them resembles another. Mr. X's is perhaps the finest, but he was singing a song about spring, spring, gentle spring all through the bombardment, and was overexcited, I fear. The next best was Mr. Wise, but he was telling about how he took a Russian battery along with another man during the Crimean War, and he was not fairly through the story till the salute was over, though I remember he went up and saw the smoke, I will not frame a description of the devastation salute, for I have no material that I can feel sure is reliable. THE GRAND SPECTACULAR CLIMAX When we first sailed away from Ostend, I found myself in a dilemma. I had no notebook. But any port in a storm, as the sailors say, I found a fair, full pack of ordinary playing cards in my overcoat pocket. One always likes to have something along to amuse children with, and really they proved excellent to take notes on, although bystanders were a bit inclined to poke fun at them and ask facetious questions. But I was content. I made all the notes I needed. The aces and low spot cards are very good, indeed, to write memoranda on, but I will not recommend the kings and jacks. Speaking by the cards. Referring to the seven of hearts, I find that This naval exhibition and journey from Ostend to Dover is going to cost the government five hundred thousand pounds," got it from a correspondent, it is a round number. Referring to the ace of diamonds, I find that along in the afternoon we sighted a fresh fleet of of men-of-war coming to meet us, the rest of the diamonds down to the eighth spot nines and tens are no good for notes, are taken up with details of that spectacle. Most of the clubs and hearts refer to matters immediately following that, but I really can hardly do anything with them, because I have forgotten what was Trump's. THE SPECTACLE But But never mind. The sea-scene grew, little by little, until presently it was very imposing. We drew up into the midst of a waiting host of vessels, enormous five-masted men-of-war, great turret-ships, steam-packets, pleasure-yachts, every sort of craft indeed. The sea was thick with them the yards and riggings of the warships loaded with men the packets crowded with people the pleasure ships rainbowed with brilliant flags all over and over some with flags struck thick on lines stretching from bowsprit to foremast thence to mainmast thence to mizzenmast and thence to stern all the ships were in motion gliding hither and thither in and out mingling and parting a bewildering whirl of flash and color our leader the vast black ugly but very formidable devastation plowed straight through the gay throng our Shah ships following the lines of big men of war saluting, the booming of the guns drowning the cheering, stately islands of smoke towering everywhere. And so in this condition of unspeakable grandeur we swept into the harbor of Dover and saw the English princes and the long ranks of red-coated soldiers waiting on the pier civilian multitudes behind them, the lofty hill front by the castle swarming with spectators, and there was the crash of cannon and a general hurrah all through the air. It was rather a contrast to silent Ostend and the unimpressible Flanders. The shah impressed at last the duke of edinburgh and prince arthur received the shah in state and then all of us princes shahs ambassadors grand viziers and newspaper correspondents climbed aboard the train and started off to london just like so many brothers from dover to london it was a sight to see seventy miles of human beings in a jam the gaps were not worth mentioning, and every man, woman, and child, waving hat or handkerchief and cheering. I wondered, could not tell, could not be sure, could only wonder, would this impress the shah? I would have given anything to know, but, well, it ought, but still one could not tell and by and by we burst into the london railway station a very large station it is and found it wonderfully decorated and all the neighboring streets packed with cheering citizens would this impress the shah i i well i could not yet feel certain The Prince of Wales received the shah. Ah, you should have seen how gorgeously the shah was dressed now. He was like the sun in a total eclipse of rainbows. Yes, the prince received him, put him in a grand open carriage, got in, and made him sit over further and not crowd. The carriage clattered out of the station, all London fell apart on either side, and lifted a perfectly national cheer, and just at that instant the bottom fell out of the sky, and forty deluges came pouring down at once. The great strain was over, the crushing suspense at an end. I said, Thank God this will impress the shah. Now came the long files of horse guards in silver armor. We took the great Persian to Buckingham Palace. I never stirred till I saw the gates open and close upon him with my own eyes, and knew he was there. Then I said, England, here is your shah. Take him, and be happy. But don't ever ask me to fetch over another one. This contract has been pretty straining on me. End of chapter 4 O'SHAW, part 1, read by John Greenman.